You're listening to the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast by Cepos, an independent free market think tank based in Copenhagen. Continue listening for inspiring conversations with experts and thinkers about economics, politics and society. Your host is Cepos president Martin Overup. The guest star is uh, Mark Littlewood, who is uh, Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. And we will be talking about Brexit and uh, a um, free market, libertarian, classical, liberal argument for uh, leaving the European Union, uh, which um, Mark Littlewood uh, is in favor of. And um, I'm in opposition to his view, so we can have a discussion about that. Uh, Mark, welcome to uh, this podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, you are joining from a hotel room in Tenerife. How did you get there? Got got here just in time, really. We uh, uh, Often I go away with my partner at this time of year. We're very rarely in uh, London for Christmas and New Year. Um, so we booked this some time ago. Uh, but we actually got out, I think it was about 24 hours before Uh, the London lockdown would have prevented international travel other than for emergencies. And I don't think I could have claimed that going on holiday to Tenerife was an emergency. Uh, but having got here, it's great. It's uh, The hotel is gorgeous, but um, largely empty. So social distancing is extremely easy. And the restaurants and the bars are open, unlike in London. So I may be staying here for some considerable time. Yeah. Uh, just a brief comment before we start. Uh, so uh, you're saying... About 15% full is the, is the hotel? Yeah, something like that. And this hotel is And it's a very large hotel. It's largely dependent on British tourists. I would say considerably more than half of the people here are British tourists. So we may very well have been the last arrivals a week before right. Christmas. Right. So people are going home, but nobody from the United Kingdom is arriving. So the, the staff to guest ratio is improving ever more in our favor with each <laughs> passing day. But what I find striking is that you told me that all the restaurants, there are eight restaurants in the hotel, and all the that's restaurants right. are, are still open. It, yes, it's that's kind right. of interesting. I'm pretty sure if that was a, a sort of state-run monopoly, they would have shut down seven of the restaurants and said, sorry, guys, uh, you know, we, we got to... <laughs> that might be right. Of course, the great advantage you have here in uh, uh, that we don't have in Copenhagen or in London is there are still quite strict rules here in Tenerife about uh, COVID. You need to wear a face mask in public if you're not eating or drinking. But because the weather here is so good, it's about 23 or 24 degrees every day. Everything's outside. So you're not allowed to eat inside in restaurants, but everybody's dining al fresco anyway. But uh, I'm guessing in Copenhagen and London at the moment, uh, dining outside would not be a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, no, it wouldn't. Not at all. Mark, uh, let's get to it. Brexit. Uh, in March 2016, you wrote uh, an op-ed for, um, I think it was The Telegraph, that uh, ran the headline, I used to love the EU, now I want Britain to leave. Yep. Uh, so tell me about that personal journey of yours. How did you... Uh, well, get initially, to, to that and going back, let's say, 20 years, uh, I wasn't just fond of the European Union. I was a real enthusiast for it. In fact, my first job uh, after leaving university and law school was working for an organization called the European Movement, a pro-European uh, organization. I uh, used to be a member of the executive committee of the Danish European Movement. Ah, so. there you go, there you go. And um, on very classical liberal grounds, I was extremely attracted to the European project. I thought that things that removed barriers, facilitated trade, Um, you know, made it uh, simplicity to mutually recognize qualifications, you know, making sure that uh, a Danish driving license was okay to drive a car in the United Kingdom and vice versa. Um, even though you're uh, driving the um, wrong side of the road, Mark. Yeah, yeah. So even though we drive on the wrong side of the road, but we think that you Danes and other Europeans are probably competent enough to realize that if you get behind the wheel of a motor vehicle in, in the UK. So it, it, it appealed to me as a, a framework for breaking down barriers to trade, basically, and right. uh, liberating uh, people and businesses uh, across uh, an expanding uh, geographical area, of course, uh, uh, from an initial six to uh, right up to now 27. All of that appealed to me. 
but um, over time, and this is a contingent point, I don't believe there's a principled reason for classical liberals to support or oppose the, the European Union in principle. I, think, I don't think there's a theoretical right or wrong from a classical liberal perspective. But over time, I became increasingly concerned that almost that the European Union was not a federal project, um, but was increasingly a centralization project. Uh, and was coming up with ever more uh, strident regulation to enforce uniformity, uh, rather than, if you like, setting a, a, a floor uh, and allowing considerable uh, flexibility for each member state to pursue its own objectives. Now, in the UK, that's often been overstated, I think, that sort of 80% of our laws come from Brussels. Um, and uh, even if that was true in quantum, it's not true in impact. You know, we, we have the power to set our own tax rates. We have a lot of regulatory flexibility. But nevertheless, from a, a liberal free market perspective, I was seeing less and less about the European Union that I liked. Uh, I think, that especially with regard to regulation, that was becoming more and more intrusive and almost petty, uh, that it was no longer uh, broad sweeping rules about, let's say, the free movement of people. It was uh, directives about the exact size and nature of a health warning on a packet of cigarettes or how quickly the standby button needs to switch off your television set if you haven't, you know, uh, hit a button on it for two hours in order to save the planet from climate change or the maximum suction power of a vacuum cleaner. I mean, these are extraordinary uh, yes. regulations for a centralised bureaucracy to be imposing rather than the broad sweep of facilitating uh, trade amongst the member states. And were still, I think it's uh, ability to open up trade to the 93% of the human race who don't live in the European Union has been pretty poor. Not absolutely catastrophic. The EU does have trade agreements with other parts of the world, but poor. So from a, a global free trading point of view, I increasingly reached the view that the European Union was in danger of becoming something of a racket, a protectionist racket to prop up industries in Western Europe. So it was, a, it was a balanced decision. It was over a long period of time that I changed my mind. I, I liked the single market idea uh, in, the, in the early uh, 1990s, um, uh, but I think that it's become, uh, the EU's mindset has been increasingly a drive to uniformity, almost for uniformity's own sake. And that Brexit there, therefore provided a chance, not a guarantee by any means, but a chance to shake this up a bit and bring a bit of regulatory competition. Uh, and let's see how that works out. I think actually it will be good for the EU to have a fairly major economy on its doorstep that can diverge from uh, its decisions. And we can do so in a perfectly friendly way. So I'm quite excited about it, but I'm not certain about it. And one of the things that has frustrated me in the British debate has been a bit too much certainty on both sides of the argument. Those who wanted to stay in the EU would have us believe that it would be a sort of economic apocalypse if we left. And was in, in some of them almost sort of suggesting that it would it suggests a sort of narrow-minded nationalism or almost a racism to even contemplate doing so. And some who were the most ardent supporters of Leave believe that this was a, a moment of national salvation that is sort of certain to lead to the rebirth of the United Kingdom as a, uh, an incredibly prosperous and powerful country. Neither of those are true. I think it's a That's, much, uh, much more marginal decision. That, that's interesting. Uh, that that resonates with me in in general uh over the recent years i've been more and more um persuaded of the idea that most decisions are not you know 100 zero or 90 10 uh, decisions where you know 90% of the evidence weighs in in you know in one direction and only 10% weighs in the other and I, what i hear you saying this is kind of a maybe a 60 40 position for uh, a decision for you that you know on balance uh, you have 60% saying yes i want to leave and 40% saying maybe staying in would have been better is yeah, that I think is that, that correct i think that's probably, that, that that's about right i mean the, the way i looked at it 
um, when uh, going back to, I think, almost that Telegraph article, I'm not sure I referenced it in that article, but my thought process was if the UK stayed in the European Union, um, we were probably sort of more or less guaranteed a six out of 10 future, you know, not too bad, you know, a bit above average. Yeah. If we left the European Union, um, the, the uh, range of possible outcomes for the United Kingdom widened enormously. And you could imagine a scenario, now we are leaving, as we're speaking now in just a, you know, we'll be completely out in just a few hours time, having gone through the transition period for 2020. But the range of possible futures for the UK is now probably anything between a four out of 10 and a nine out of 10. And I'm not sure where we'll end up on that spectrum. Mm. I can imagine, I'm open-minded to imagining the UK government uh, over the next five, 10, 15 years, taking a series of such disastrous policy and strategic decisions that I end up regretting our departure from the European Union. That would be at the fore end of the spectrum. But if you're gonna have a little bit of optimism, which I appreciate has been in rather short supply in the year 2020, and I think if you get a number of things right, our future could easily be a sort of an eight or a nine out of 10. So I guess on the one hand, I kind of thought staying in was a six, leaving could be anything between a four and a nine. But if you add four and nine together and halve them, you get six and a half. So <laughs> uh, on balance, leave, I think, is, is yeah. worth the gamble. But it is a gamble. It is yeah. a gamble. There's no doubt. So, so it's the, the risk, uh, risk averse uh, response would be to stay in and the sort of risk I wouldn't say risk loving, but risk willing uh, response would be you no. Know, let's let's try this and see what we can do with it. So in in yeah. that sense, and I agree with you there. So in, in that sense, Danes should be thankful that the British are taking this risk for them, and sort of showing uh, us what is possible outside the European Union. And you know, if it goes well, we could consider doing the same. And if it goes badly, you know, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, yep. So in that sense, you're doing us a favour. Yeah, we, we uh, offered to be the, the guinea pigs that's for, the, right, uh, that's for right. any other member state who might consider yeah. departure, I guess. Uh, but of course, and, in, uh, in another sense, you are doing us a disfavour because you've left uh, the alliance of, of relatively uh, sort of classical liberal free market countries that don't want the European Union to be too, too centralized. They don't want the European Union to have its own taxes. They want spending to be, uh, you know, not increasing too too quickly, et cetera. And, and it, we're get, having a harder time now negotiating that. Uh, we have a European Union that is less market friendly, that is more hostile to financial, uh, the financial sector, for instance. There's a risk that we'll get, you know, uh, taxes on financial transactions and all, all this kind of stuff yeah. in the European Union. So that's a risk factor as well, that the European Union with Britain having, well, within a few hours, having left the Union, and we're recording this on the last day of 2020 so so it's now it's happening now and and uh, how would you balance in that risk that the european union which is very close to you it's in your interest that the union does well that the union will do poorly with britain outside what's your take yep. on that? Uh, that, uh, that that is a, a fair argument and in fact um our, our former academic and research director at the iea professor philip booth who uh, voted for remain one of his key arguments was uh, he didn't quite concede, I'm putting words in his mouth, but he, he sort of said, look, well, it, it, it might not be particularly good for the United Kingdom to stay in, but we should be more altruistic than that. It would be very good <laughs> for the European Union if we stayed in, because we would keep it anchored in a, in a slightly more classical liberal free market direction than it otherwise would be the case. And, and if you are an altruistic person, that should weigh with you. You know, we should be helping people like Martin and Cepos in Denmark rather than just sort of exiting stage left. I can see that argument, and I think it likely that on balance, probably not enormously so, but the, the EU will become uh, a, a rather more statist, social democratic, rather less classical liberal um, in, in aggregate than it would be if the United Kingdom was round the table. Against that, however, and I appreciate there is no proof here, this is a, a, a leap of faith, a guess, an assertion. Yes. Um, if the UK outside practices classical liberal policies, or at least to a, a greater degree than the European Union, and if those are shown to be successful, 
then I guess you and I, Martin, and people of our mindset are a great believer that competition, you know, drives replication. And perhaps rather than being the, uh, it would probably be unfair to say we were an unwelcome member of the European Union, but we were always slightly, by our own design, sort of sitting on the sidelines, complaining about everything and sort of saying, sure. we don't really like this, we don't really like that. And we're sort of slowing down um, uh, some of the tendencies of other European Union states rather than actually driving the agenda. Perhaps it would be better for classical liberal Danes and others in the European Union who want a more classical liberal EU to actually have a classical liberal UK on the outside uh, successfully competing if we were to go down that path and showing that there shouldn't be a financial transactions tax, for example, that we don't need to regulate the exact suction power of a vacuum cleaner, for example. Mm. And if the practice of classical liberalism in an independent United Kingdom is shown to work, leads to greater prosperity, higher growth, then presumably there is a chance that that will edge the EU in that direction rather more than us being a sort of slightly, the, the you know, sitting on the sidelines around the table and rolling our eyes and whinging about the general direction of the EU. So it, it, if you consider the dynamic, the possible dynamic effect if Britain gets it right, that could be win-win. It could actually, over the medium term, encourage the European Union to replicate a slightly more free market model, if indeed we go down that path, and if it's shown to be successful on the EU doorstep. I agree, and that's in, you know institutional competition, and that's uh, that's a, a very uh, very important concept. I think that most people discussing international politics uh, don't take into account. So I I agree with you there, but how do you think? Taking, looking at what's been happening over the last four years or so since you wrote that article, what, what is your take on, is this the direction Britain is heading in with the, you know, the current government and the current prime minister? Isn't there a discussion of you know, introducing a wealth tax, for instance? No, no, sure. I mean, look, it would be having given that um, glorious sort of introduction to how uh, libertarian utopia in the United Kingdom in the coming years is going to point the be the shining beacon that the rest of you will follow. Clearly, it's not anything like as binary as that. Um, we, uh, I mean, my audit of this government would be mixed. Um, I think probably on balance, its uh, impulses are more in a classical liberal direction than the average mean or median of the EU as a whole. Mm. Uh, so all things are relative. You know, I'm not, I'm not giving uh, the Boris Johnson government a kind of 10 out of 10 or even a nine or an eight. But it might be that I would give it a sort of six and a half compared to giving the EU a three or a four. Right. Uh, so well, what is Boris Johnson things- doing that's, that's pulling that up currently? Uh, well, p- part of it is actually what he's not doing, right? So okay. what, what do you think the likely trajectory is going to be of regulation in the EU over the next five or 10 years? And for example, although he's made no concrete pledges, you know, he's a man who speaks in very broad brushstrokes in, uh, in terms of his views. Just a few days ago, he was saying, right, well, Britain now has a great opportunity in financial services, bioscience and artificial intelligence to really pursue our own framework for developing those. Now, he he didn't get into detail, but I would say one could speculate that it would be pretty likely that in those areas, financial services, biosciences and artificial intelligence, we will regulate those relatively lightly compared to the European Union. Again, that's a guess, it's not a certainty, but I would say if you look at where the cards are presently sitting, Boris Johnson's government and the sort of UK's attitude and approach to these things is likely to mean, even if we don't get everything absolutely bang on optimum from a kind of purist libertarian perspective, that we will probably regulate those in a lighter touch sort of fashion, uh, encouraging innovation rather than Isn't that just one way of interpreting what he's saying there? Because I'm also seeing in the public debate in Britain, I I don't follow it as closely as you, obviously, but I I do read the papers sometimes and The Economist, etc. And what I tend to see is a lot of people saying, well, you know, now that Britain is leaving, this gives us 
freedom to pursue industrial policy, you know, like in the good old days yeah. where we subsidize uh, industry and get industrial production back. And that will be good for, for, you know, for, for the, for the North and for regions struggling. Uh, uh, and we also need to, to, to have much more Keynesian stimulus. And that's possible now that the Germans uh, and the, the, the European central bank isn't running, uh, to a large extent, our uh, macroeconomic policy. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of you know, it's, it 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 does free Britain, but but to move in which direction? That, and, that's and, 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 true. and what he was saying there could be interpreted as as him saying these are the sectors that we want to focus on, and we'll do that by subsidizing them or protecting them from competition or whatever it is. What is your take on that? What is your is, is your is your sense that? Britain is moving in that direction, or am yes, I wrong there? Yes, I mean, I, that, that, that's where my worries lie. Um, the, the benefits, to my mind, where I'm feeling quite confident is that, at least in terms of the flow of regulation, if not the stock, I don't think we're going to actually repeal much of EU uh, regulation. That will just sit on the stocks. We may tamper with it a bit. But in terms of the flow of regulation, I think we'll get right. I think our trade policy is likely to be more liberal. But you're quite right, Martin. I mean, a danger of giving any country, just with any individual, greater freedom is they might use that freedom <laughs> incredibly stupidly. Uh, and the, 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 there is a danger that uh, unshackled from the state aid rules, you know, we now have the power, which we, our politicians have suddenly rediscovered to bail out or subsidise their particular, which would have been circumscribed by EU law. That power is now in our hands. And it might be it, there is a risk that we will use uh, our newfound sovereignty to do stupid things rather than sensible things. And I think you are correct to point out, uh, I think it's an important uh, point and a, a sobering point for uh, liberal Brexiteers such as myself, that if you were to look at the sweeping narrative as a whole, there is a danger that we will move down the state aid route, that we want to sort of build new businesses in the northeast of England. Uh, to particularly help areas that the uh, that the ruling Conservative Party surprisingly won at the last election and wish to keep. It's possible we'll go down that route. And it's possible, too, that we won't seize a good number of the opportunities that, uh, I, to my mind, uh, should be open and shut. I mean, the, the, uh, an argument I've put to British cabinet ministers here is, um, uh, you know, I wasn't of the view that we should leave the EU on a particular hour and all EU law is immediately rescinded. But I think we should go through it with a tooth comb and try and work out, do we really want to keep this? Do we want to rescind this? Do we want to amend this? Rather than just assuming that we've inherited the perfect regulation. And my starting point would be to say that uh, anything that we've inherited from the European Union that was passed by qualified majority voting with the United Kingdom in opposition, surely that, those regulations should be on the chopping block. I mean, an example of that would be the agency workers and part-time worker directive. The Cameron government opposed this. Uh, it was passed by QMV. I haven't heard anybody in the conservative uh, the hierarchy of the conservative party or the government saying that the british government's changed its mind so if that was a rule that was imposed upon us uh, against our better judgment surely that should be rescinded so you're right there's a there's a worry that we'll start pulling state aid levers and we won't use the levers that are available to us in fact i was saying to a, a friend of mine just a couple of days ago um, but my worry is that this reminds me a bit of a scene from the Monty Python movie, The Meaning of Life. Uh, in this Monty <laughs> Python movie, Graham Chapman uh, plays a rather pompous Protestant who is whimsically reflecting upon all of the great freedoms he has to do naughty, titillating or sexy things <laughs> because he's a Protestant and not a Catholic. However, he doesn't do any of these things. He just <laughs> reflects that he has the freedom to do these things. And there probably is a danger that the UK falls into the similar trap. We sort of pat ourselves on the back that we can now design our regulations as we wish or get rid of EU laws that we were always opposed to. But just to uh, pompously think that without doing it would be to miss the great Brexit opportunity. So I'm not, I'm not certain everything will go well. Uh, it is a risk. Um, uh, 
certainly a, a lot of things it's argued that a that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party would have wanted to do had they prevailed at the last election would effectively have been circumscribed by EU law. That's no longer the case. If we uh, choose to elect a very, very socialist interventionist government, that is what we will get. So the, the, breadth, uh, the, the, the breadth and the width of possible outcomes has widened and definitely includes things which would be worse than continued EU membership. I still think on balance, that the, the broad views, at least of this government, on balance are just in the direction of not having too heavy-handed regulations, uh, not taxing too much. They're nothing like as liberal as I'd like them to be. I think the COVID pandemic has also brought out authoritarian instincts in, in people who would otherwise have been considered sympathetic to a fairly free market liberal yeah. program. Everywhere, but, Mark. It's everywhere, been, that's it's true. Been, it's been terrible, yeah. Um, but but nevertheless, on balance, uh, I think that we will do some stupid things, but yeah. overall, more sensible things. Um, I, I guess. I guess the central point. I guess the central point here is uh, that many people don't realize, certainly not in the Danish debate, is how how Britain will do is hasn't really got that much to do with whether Britain is a member of the European Union or not. I, I agree with you com completely that this four to nine uh, interval is absolutely correct. Um, you, you know, many countries are doing very well outside the European Union. You know, Switzerland is doing great. It's more, well, more wealthy than we are. Um, you know, Singapore is, is far away. It's, it would be strange to have them as a member of the European Union, but it's certainly an example of a country that's very prosperous. Uh, you know, it, it's not a country I would love to live in because of the other issues, culture, democracy, uh, personal freedom is not that great, but, but, but they're certainly economically doing well. So, so um, the European Union is just one path to success for countries. And there are other paths, and that's very, very important to realize. Um, yeah, I, I and, think this and, is such an important point. I really do. Because the, one of the things which I was alluding to earlier, Martin, that has infuriated me about the debate has been the absolutism on each side, uh, as if the uh, whether one's membership of the European Union or not is the overarching defining thing about everything that happens to you. And... You know, I suspect overall, not a great deal is going to change. Uh, that in two or three years' time, I would like to think we'll be modest. We would have made modestly better or less stupid decisions than the EU's made. Uh, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be transformative. I think, however, if I'm right on that, that this is a more marginal uh, overall decision than most people would allow. That's quite an important. Um, uh, that's quite an important insight from a classical liberal perspective. That too often people sort of think that the the world we live in is defined entirely by our institutional structures. And as I mentioned earlier, although I wouldn't want to tar all supporters of the Remain campaign here with this brush, it, even a kind of liberal approach to multiculturalism cosmopolitanism and internationalism was sort of saying, oh, you've got to support our membership of the EU then. Well, why? I mean, my support for you know, anti-racism and being open to people of all different cultures it does not find its expression through the European Union Council of Ministers or some, you know, or some bureaucratic department in the European Commission. So I think what might be an interesting outcome of this from a classical liberal perspective is if nothing much changes it would at least show that the emperor has no clothes that it's actually not uh, that important whether you're in the european union or not and that the claims made by the european union that it's a kind of it's bureaucratic and institutional structures are fundamental and necessary for preserving peace in europe or for maintaining reasonable levels of prosperity uh, I think that bureaucratic class is going to be in for a shock because even if the UK doesn't get up to the eights or nines out of ten that I'd like it to, I don't think we're going to. Uh, I don't think the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the plague of locusts is about to arrive in the UK, and it may just illustrate, even if the argument will go on and on and on about whether the counterfactual would we have been better off if we'd stayed in, if in fact there isn't much difference. Uh, if it's not completely obvious 
then that of itself is potentially a win for those of us who are somewhat skeptical about the extent to which bureaucratic institutional structures are the things that determine our opportunities and prosperity. Right, and um, I guess there's a, an opposite argument to that, which is uh, that you might also find that a lot of the freedom that you, a lot of people expect to get out of leaving the European Union is maybe a bit of an illusion as well, because if you want to trade with Europe, uh, to some extent, you'll have to accept the rules, uh, maybe not as as part of a you know a qualified majority vote that you lose, but as as you know a, a fact of life. You know, this is just the way we have to do things, and that's part of the argument for staying in. That Switzerland and Norway also have to comply with the rules of the European Union, so it's better to be inside, uh, having a say on what those rules are going to look like, than sitting outside and having to accept them. What's your take on that argument? Uh that, that, that again is a contingent argument. A, a similar case could be made that we should, in the UK, apply to become the 51st state of, of the, the USA. And it is true that we presently trade more with uh, the European Union than we do with the USA, although the USA is a But that's also country. institutional. Uh, as you know, it, it, I guess that's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize that, that uh, you know, they, they look at what would happen if we leave the European Union? Well, that's terrible because we would lose our major trading partners. Well, we have a mm -hmm. flexible economy. We have businesses. I yep. mean, COVID, if anything, has shown how flexible businesses can be. They can sure. convert within days from producing one product to producing something else. And businesses yep. can, can convert from exporting to, to one exporting partner to to, to another. Uh, so if you have a flexible free market economy, uh, you're very likely to... Um, exaggerate the costs of of uh, institutional changes. Yes, I think that's because because business will certain. adapt to the to the new circumstances. Yeah, I think that's almost certainly true. So what this hinges on, uh, and you're quite right. I mean, obviously, if we wish to continue, which we do, to sell products and services into the European Union single market, those products and services have to comply with European Union single market rules. But I've never considered that to be a much of a revelation. I mean, stuff that we sell into the American market has to comply with American rules. Stuff that we sell into the Singaporean market has to comply with Singaporean rules. Um, no, none of those are reasons why we should, uh, none of those are compelling reasons why we should seek to share a regulatory institutional structure with the United States of America or with Singapore or with Australia. And it's why I'm quite interested in the, in how we approach trade deals going forward. The uh, Secretary of State for Trade here, uh, Liz Truss, is a very classical liberal free market uh, buccaneer, a good friend of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Thus far, in truth, we haven't done a great deal more than just uh, succeed in rolling on what the EU arrangement was. We've done a bit better than that with Japan. Uh, I think there's every chance that we will actually apply to join the CPTPP, the Common and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership that already has 10 or 11 members in it. So we might join other free trade areas. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap of saying that trade requires free trade deals and it's all about the treaty signed between governments. It isn't. But this might be as good a way of influencing the regulatory environment around the world um, by sitting across the table with the Australians, with the Japanese, with the EU, with the Americans, you know, with the Canadians, with the Turks, and saying, look, hang on a second, you know, the, the, these barriers that you've got against our motor car industry, insurance industry, whatever, you've got to surely lower these and, and, and we'll lower them in, in return. That might actually be a better dynamic force for spreading a, a liberal approach to trade and regulation than it is to have a seat round the table in the Council of Ministers or 70 MEPs in the European Parliament. Not certain that it is, but not certain that it isn't. Uh, right. The UK is still, what, the fifth largest economy in the world. And if we use our influence in the WTO, and through bilateral trade agreements, uh, let alone the influence that we might have in any uh, trade blocks we join, like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, it could well turn out 
that uh, that is a better way of the UK, uh, not just defending its own interests or spreading uh, liberalism, than it is to have a seat round the table, as it's called, which is always, I think, again, a very bureaucratic institutional way of looking at it. You want a seat round the table. Well, which table? I mean, we're still going to sit round tables and talk to people. Why do I need a particular seat in your particular bureaucratic and institutional structure? Why is it I need a particular seat at this particular meeting of the EU Council of Ministers? Not necessarily so. The seat that I might round, want round the table is facing you eye to eye in the way that Lord David Frost, our chief negotiator, did with Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator. And worth saying there, I think, in terms of the, the broad content of the the, the deal. Um, that's far, far, I think it's far, far better for the United Kingdom than the renegotiation conducted by David Cameron's government, where we had a seat round the table, but we were unable to extract any meaningful concessions from the European Union at all. In terms of the things that we wanted and the liberalizations we wanted, it was only when we said, okay, we're getting divorced that we actually started to get some of those, uh, some movement there and have ended up with a deal which is remarkably similar, I mean, I would say almost identical to uh, a plan that the IEA put forward in 2018. We call it Plan A+. Plus. Um, the text, well, obviously the text of the final deal is written in legalese, ours is a think tank pamphlet, but I, I, it's, I, I, it's are almost you say, Are that. you saying that the Brexit deal that uh, has just been passed is similar to what you proposed back, when oh, very, was this? Oh, in, interesting. In, we'll, we'll, we'll link to that document. I think in 2018, yeah, we released a, we released a document called Plan A Plus. Okay. Again, we, we had said we, the IEA took no position on leave or remain, but we said if we are going to leave, what would the most free market arrangement look yeah, like? By the way, I think for, to, to many listeners who don't know exactly how a think tank works, so you took a position as the CEO of your your title is direct, director general but it's the same thing as, yeah. as ceo of of the ia you took a personal position but that didn't mean that the um uh, iea took a institutional position exactly right um yeah. we we don't actually take a an institutional position on any policy although neither do we but it's very hard for people to understand that if i go out yeah. and say something they assume that it's it's, so it's the position yeah. um but i mean most often times we would find that uh, the IEA staff and trustees and associated academics would be in broad agreement. I can't think of anybody at the IEA who thinks that the tax burden should go up, um, for example. Uh, but uh, there are a range of issues upon which we, we, we genuinely disagree. And in fact, we, we polled the IEA staff uh, in a secret ballot at the time of the, the referendum. Uh, and we didn't just give leave or remain as options. We said, you know, you're definitely going to vote leave or you're probably going to vote leave. Do you not know? You're probably going to vote remain. You're right. definitely going to vote remain. But if you then, uh, if you've split just down into those indicating they were for leave and those indicating they were for remain, I think it was about 55%, uh, maybe 60% for leave and about 35% for remain. So oh. we, we were on balance more Brexity than the country as a whole, but not enormously so. Oh, and I, I believe there was there was a televised debate between you and one of your employees That's where right. you, you disagreed. Right. But, Diego uh, Zulaga, uh, who was on our staff at the time, very passionately for Remain, and on uh, referendum night itself, the two guests for a, a debate on CNN, it was actually, on CNN. College Green, which is, we went over to College Green, which is the <laughs> large patch of grass just opposite Parliament, sat in CNN's tent. And Diego and I went hammer and tongs about it, even though I was his boss, he's perfectly entitled to express a different view. Both of us were arguing from a classical liberal perspective. Right. Right. It's just we reached different conclusions about what the most desirable outcome was. And yeah. I think it's healthy for think tanks to have those internal debates. We're, we're not political parties, we're not governments. It, it, it doesn't matter if we're divided, if there's a genuine point of, uh, of, of intellectual disagreement. Uh, I, I think having that uh, discussion and debate in public is to be encouraged. I agree, and we have many discussions like that at CBOS as well. I've never actually been in a televised debate with an with an employee on, on a <laughs> subject where, where we disagreed. I, I, I'd love to do it, but um, it, the, the, the occasion hasn't occurred yet. <laughs> uh, anyway, let's get back to um, to um, to Brexit. So there's one argument uh, that um, I find somewhat compelling, 
which is that we are fa facing a world now where China is, you know, gaining strength. Uh, a lot of countries are very reluctant to stand up against sort of some of the illiberal uh, tendencies that comes out of China. And uh, in order for us to, in, in order for a liberal democracy to, uh, you know, fight for the advancement of liberal democracy in the world, we, the liberal democracies need to stand together. And the European Union is an important uh, platform for that. What's your take on that? I think I agree with all of that, apart from the last few words, um, that liberal democracies need to stand together. I agree with that. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a strong believer in a kind of what has become an increasingly amorphous Western alliance. You know, I think NATO is now a less important part of the Western alliance than it was at the time of the Cold War, when, you know, the, there was an existential threat um, from uh, communism and the threat of all-out nuclear war. Uh, so I would like to find mechanisms in which Western liberal countries can um, club together, uh, try and coordinate their actions on the international stage. What I'm not persuaded of is that the EU is a particularly good example of that. Um, uh, I, I don't think it has succeeded in that regard. It's not even particularly obvious to me that it should strive to place that within its competence. I mean, the, the, the European Union, I don't mean this in a dis dismissive way, is, a, is an inward-looking operation. It's you know, it's to try and, you know, ensure that things flow smoothly within Western Europe initially and then the wider continent of Europe, that conflict is avoided, that we don't go to war again, having done that twice in the 20th century. Um, fine, great. But has it shown, does it have the competence, the capacity, the ability to stand up to China? It, it seems to me that that no, would be an area I, in which I would its reach and its you, grasp would be rather it, its its reach would be considerably greater than its grasp. I would agree, but what institution does have that? I mean, wouldn't the European Union be the best bet for an institution that could develop that? That um, I'm oh, not I think sure. I'm not sure. Not. I want to hear your opinion about it. Well, I think you you emphatically need the United States of America involved in in, yeah. in, in such. Uh, if, if you believe in the Western Alliance, that's basically what we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, okay, you can add on Australia and New Zealand, I guess, but we're we're printing to be talking about Europe plus the USA. So, uh, I, I mean, I don't, have a, uh, I don't have a blueprint ready for you about what that should look like, but if one were to uh, just ponder things entirely hypothetically, should we remake NATO into that sort of operation? You know, NATO still has essentially, because it was designed for the Cold War, it's still sort of in that framework. Maybe mm. NATO needs to be more of the mechanism for engagement with China, not pointing all of our nuclear weapons at China necessarily, but engagement with China. Or, I, I mean, I would, you know, I, I despair at the United Nations. I mean, really, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily an abolitionist because I think having an institution in which people can talk to each other probably has some benefit, but it obviously has no democratic legitimacy. Should there be some sort of League of Nations uh, in which you can only join if you are, you know, a democracy with basic respect for human rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think every EU member state would qualify. Uh, the United States of America would qualify. Canada would qualify. Australia and New Zealand would qualify. You know, maybe we do need to build India? a different Western alliance. India? India? Uh, couldn't say with certainty. Potentially, yes. I mean, it is a democracy. No. Um, you know, at the margins, you know, Turkey, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not sure exactly it's a tough where I, I, I'm not exactly sure where I draw the line. But if the principal aim was to get the Western Alliance together, we, we definitely know who clearly, you know, Denmark and the United Kingdom and the United States clearly qualify. So the, the, the question is, what sort of structure should we have? Not obvious to me that the European Union has a particularly interesting or competent role to play there. I think I'd probably want to reform NATO, recalibrate NATO, or set up some League of Democratic Nations as a sort of alternative to the UN, something of that sort of ilk. So uh, my keenness for Brexit does not necessarily mean I'm, in fact, it doesn't mean that I'm against international institutions per se. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm very interested in what alliances can be built in the WTO to tackle a lot of the problems with China. Um, uh, but I don't think that our present 
institutional constitutional frameworks are necessarily the appropriate ones. So we're always they were designed for the last war, if you like. I mean, almost literally, uh, yes. but uh, but metaphorically as well. Uh, so we, I think we just need to be a bit more adept at changing our institutional frameworks to adapt to different circumstances. And to be honest, the UN, the EU, and NATO haven't really done that. That's not to say that they should all just be eviscerated as institutions, but they haven't really shown an adaptability or flexibility is certainly not at the level that I would have liked. Okay. Let's return to, um, to Britain. Uh, you, you were, uh, the sarcasm, the underlying sarcasm in, at one point in what you were saying uh, did not escape me when, when we were talking about you know, the risk that Britain would move in the wrong direction from you know a prosperity perspective and also from a sort of value perspective the way we see it um that you were saying well yes freedom is always um that, that if you give people freedom there's the risk that they make wrong decisions mm-hmm. and 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 um and that's that's certainly true and i guess um we as sort of classical liberals do also think that states are not always comparable to individuals in, in that respect, that the, the, the freedom of states need to be, uh, I mean, we need constitutions, we need to protect individual liberty. And mm-hmm. in order to do that, we need to make sure that's, that there are limits to what's, what states can do. Um, but on the other hand, um, I was wondering, what is it exactly that you find very compelling and, and important that Britain can do now that you couldn't do when you were in the European Union. I mean, you could have cut corporate taxes. You did cut well, corporate we did. taxes. We did cut yes, corporate. you did. You, you could have, uh, I mean, you were fairly free to regulate the, the city uh, the way you wanted to, I think. Yes. I mean, I would like us to, I mean, the MIFID, should never have been brought in or or imposed gdpr all of the rules about data collection right. and, yes. and, but, I mean, the, the problem with if you like regulatory freedom is um i don't think i can point to two or three killer regulations that if we incinerated them or reformed them would suddenly add you know 10% to british gdp it, it, they are all at an incredibly micro level yeah. and uh, and only are you know add 0.0000001% to gdp so yes. um and 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 similarly to sort of economic and personal freedom it's uh, yeah, each they're, individual they're thing is, and, and, and to my mind it's actually more which uh, we've mentioned before it's actually more about the flow than the stock uh, right. i mean i think that the stock of regulations that we now have across europe is ridiculously burdensome but uh to oversimplify here, generally speaking, businesses can adapt to the stock. I mean, if you bring in uh, a regulation saying, for example, that absolutely every business with more than two stories must have three elevators in order to help people who aren't very mobile to get around the building, let's say you brought in that sort of regulation. Well, within a few years, everybody's complied with it. Uh, I mean, actually then repealing that regulation might help some new businesses, but basically everybody's complied. And even ongoing uh, burdens like GDPR, quite uh, upfront costs to train everybody about how to change all of your databases, but we've probably complied with it now. So I'm much more interested in the flow. Uh, you know, are the... Can I just interrupt and we will get back to the flow. I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but there's a danger with the stock that uh, it is not, you know, you have a regulation that is not technology neutral that sort of forces businesses to do things in a certain way so that new entrepreneurs, new innovations can't really uh, enter the, the marketplace. Uh, new ideas can't be adopt- adopted because regulation forces people to do things in a certain way. And you know, if you have less innovation, you'll have less economic growth, you'll have um, less wealth. So, well, so I, I think, I think so, the stock so is important. The, the stock matters. I mean, I, was, I, I wrote in the... Um, uh, just to prove I haven't been wholly idle while I've been here in Tenerife, Martin, I wrote in the, the <laughs> Times on Monday in my fortnightly column, uh, I applauded uh, the Conservative member of the House of Lords, uh, Matt Ridley, who has been 
banging the drum. He's also a scientist and a yeah, he's he's great and, and he's a great author. I think I've read um, all his books. And he he's been saying that what we need now. I appreciate this is a concept rather than a list of specific regulations. But his view is, in essence, that the EU has overinterpreted the precautionary principle, right. that it has enshrined in its approach to regulation almost craven caution, that we should be biased in favour of the old against the new, that yeah. the, the standard that the new is held to is incredibly high, and the standard that the old is held to is isn't. And you get exactly that effect of kind of calcifying things and lacking innovation. His argument, this is not government policy, I should hasten to add, although he is a, a fairly influential thinker within uh, the Conservative Party. His view is that we should not necessarily abolish the precautionary principle. It's important to ask questions before, you know, drugs come to market. The, flid the thalidomide scandal is an example he gives. You know, you need to be, you can't just uh, abolish everything. You need to ask, you know, is this, are we confident this is safe? But it needs to be complemented with an innovation principle. What will the impact of this new rule or regulation or directive or tax be on innovation, uh, positive or negative? And if the answer is that it might very well be negative, then that should weigh as heavily as the precautionary principle. Now, I'm not that saying that the UK will adopt that, but, that, but you know, that's in the ferment of public discussion at the moment about whether we could just have that sort of rather different approach to regulation as a whole, rather than this really kind of almost extreme caution. I think that's a very, very important insight to, to have those two balancing principles, because that's what it's really about. It's about balancing different, uh, different uh, uh, things you want to happen yeah. <laughs> so you want to be cautious but you also want innovation to be possible yeah. and and, and moment, you know if, if, if you'd had regulation great. if you'd had regulation you know back in the days that would have made it impossible for penicillin to uh, to uh, be invented that would not have been precautionary that, that would have been the opposite you know awesome. millions and millions yeah. of people would have died uh, because of the precautionary principle if that had happened yeah, and I think, I mean, it, 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 as we speak now, even, there are questions, I'm not reaching any conclusions yet, and it's not my field of expertise, but there are questions about whether the regulation around rolling out the vaccine to COVID has perhaps been a bit too precautionary. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can just have one scientist saying, ha, ah, Eureka, I've got the magic formula, and the next day it's available in pharmacies. But I think there is a question about whether we have been too cautious in rolling out. And obviously, uh, had we rolled it out earlier with, you know, so we're confident enough it will do, many people would have lived. Uh, so craven caution isn't necessarily the route to even protecting human life. So there is a trade-off. Um, yeah. But at the moment, the approach has typically been only to look at the precaution side, not at the innovation side. And if you can begin to get that balance right, yeah. Long way from it, not stated policy of the British government by any means, but if you begin to get that balance right, I think you're more likely to have a regulatory and legal framework that will encourage innovation rather more than we've typically been able to in Western Europe over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, interesting. Um, so we came from a discussion of stock and, and, uh, and, and flow. Do you want to say more about flow? Well, I mean, I guess this would be the sort of flow uh, question and, 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 and direction. That the, you know, it seems to me more likely than not, not certain, but more likely than not, that the EU will continue to regulate against innovatory uh, procedures and, and science. I mean, I think that the EU regulations around uh, genetic modification, for example, are, I mean, beyond the precautionary principle, just aren't scientific, yeah, uh, yeah. are just bizarre. And even if I have to live with them forever more because we're never going to get round to looking at the entire equi communitaire, so everything we've inherited, good, bad, and indifferent, is going to stay on the, on the books. I would imagine these sort of things in future, um, uh, like artificial intelligence, for example, right. are likely to be heavy-handedly uh, regulated by the European Union and are less likely to be heavily handled, regulated by the United Kingdom. Now, at the moment, I can't even get my head around what artificial intelligence could do for our society. You know, I have half an idea, but the, the new stuff that's coming in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years yeah. uh, uh, 
Uh, I mean, I, it wouldn't amaze me if there's, uh, you know, there were even some sniffs of it. If there was an EU-wide um, directive to prevent Uber, for example. Uh, I mean, I know some, you know, that's generally being regulated at member state level. But we've had some problems with that in London, but the, I, I think it would be a lot harder to ban Uber, uh, something that 15 years ago we could not even conce conceived of existing in the UK than it would in the EU. I don't know what sort of biosciences or artificial intelligence is going to come up with over the next 15 or 20 years, but I'm concerned that the EU's regulatory environment will act as into dampening away on mm. innovation and be too cautious. Yeah. And the UK's is likely to be a more benign environment for innovation. It's a guess, it's a hope, it's a bit of a no. leap of faith, but I think there's some evidence for that. Yeah, that, that, that'll be very interesting to uh, follow. Let, let's return back to the, to the stock of, of regulation. You, you, uh, you mentioned a very interesting policy proposal earlier on uh, where you'd say, well, all the decisions, uh, regulatory decisions made by qualified majority by the European Union that Britain voted against, let's start scrapping those. That's very easy to understand. Is that proposal gaining any traction in, in, in the British government? Uh, I mean, I've raised it with cabinet ministers. I think that there, uh, I think it could become the starting point for deregulating. I mm. mean, no, nobody has turned around to me and said, what a completely crazy idea, because, you know, it, it obviously has a certain logic to it, a certain democratic logic to it, even, right? I mean, yeah. why would we continue to... Uh, abide by policies that we voted against. <laughs> I mean, pretty, pretty but, but the one just to just to uh, again to to temper my uh, Brexit optimism uh, with your uh, sober analysis, Martin. The what we mustn't fall for, and I will share an anecdote. I won't name anybody because it was in a private meeting with uh, with a government minister. But it was like something out of the TV series. I don't know if it has any traction in there, Mark. Yes, Minister and Yes, Prime Minister, which is a comedy It has traction series. with me, Mark. Right. It's a comedy series in which, which sort of yeah. shows the real power that the civil service and the bureaucracy... We'll link to that as well for yeah, the people who... Well. Yeah. <laughs> well. well, in fact, the person who wrote it was initially inspired by IA material about public choice theory. That's what gave him the idea to write it. So we yeah. can even influence... But the, the, there was one civil servant who... Who, who said in a meeting I was at in the minister, ah, oh, he said, that sounds like a good idea. But you have to understand, Minister, on a good number of occasions, the British government has voted against things that it was actually in favour of and has voted for things that it was actually against. <laughs> As part of what I said, well, I mean, at this point, you've completely you've lost it. Right? I mean, why you've been doing that is is beyond me. So I think it might be a good starting point. I mean, I think there were certain things. Well, we're going to deliberately vote this down because Spain have done something about Gibraltar or something. So I appreciate this sort of multi-dimensional chess going on, but it seems to me a good starting point. Yeah. But the but the yeah. truth is that over the last. Four years. It can't have been that important. If you vote against something, it can't really be that important to you. That important. Um, so I think it's a good starting point. The, the interesting thing, really, and this uh, I think makes the future very uncertain, um, uh, but makes potentially 2021 quite exciting, is we in the UK have been so bogged down in the process of getting Brexit done. And indeed, whether or not we should even get Brexit done, you know, it, 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 four and a half years since the referendum, um, two general elections, um, suggestions that we might go for a second referendum. So it's, it's really all been about the process of divorce, not what we're going to do with our newfound freedom. And just as we might have been getting to the point of, OK, it's now going to happen, we're going to get it over the line when we had uh, just over a year ago the um, general election that uh, re-elected the Conservatives with a handsome majority, within weeks we're hit by COVID. So government bandwidth has been really about, let's get the divorce done. Oh my God, there's a pandemic, so that's going to chew up nearly all our efforts. There hasn't yet been a great deal of focus or, or debate or discussion about what are we going to do with these newfound freedoms. There was for a short window from like December 2019 to perhaps 
February 2020, but since then it's been COVID, COVID, COVID with mm. get Brexit over the line in the background. So in 2021, I think this will come to the fore and there's you know a fair chance. I mean, it would be very odd for Boris Johnson and his Brexit government to say, oh no, I mean, the, the regulatory framework we're inheriting from the European Union is optimal. It's perfect. It's utopian. There is not one line of it we wish to change because you'd have to scratch your head and say, well, if the European Union's that good at passing regulations, why on earth did you want to leave? So um, <laughs> almost for sort of symbolic and political reasons, I think they're going to have to change some of the inherited stock. Do, do, do you but think, to my mind, the big gains are still on the flow. Do you think one in two out could, or maybe one in three out or something like that, could also be a, 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 a sort of principle to, to use to get something done on, on getting rid of regulation? As you're saying, it's, it's a sort of minute type of thing. Yeah. And with each individual paragraph you can always have an argument for well you know this is this is not so bad or actually this does have a point or whatever so so i think it's important to have a sort of disciplining uh overarching principle going on and and, and your idea with what we voted against we should get rid of is that's one overarching principle and another would be to say look we have an aim of decreasing it by this oh, amount, and, and the canadians have certainly been successful in uh, uh in at british columbia at, uh, sure. at creating a way of counting each individual regulation uh, uh, <laughs> and, and that has worked they they decreased uh, the total degree uh, the, the total uh, volume of uh, right. regulation quite substantially with that rule did you, do you think, mean, that think something like that could happen something like that could happen my I, I guess my i mean my initial strategy of get rid of the stuff that we voted against so notwithstanding this bizarre idea that we occasionally vote against things we want and vote for things we don't want. Uh, shows you how absurd politics is. But my additional thing would be to say, why don't we just say, okay, we're out now. We're, we're, we're leaving at a, a 11 p.m. actually, an hour before uh, the new year comes in. The whole lot, the entire acqui is sunset clause for 10 years time. If we have not specifically renewed it in the next decade, it dies. Now, there might be bits of it that we wish to specifically renew, but the default assumption is it dies in, let's say, 2030. We don't need to do all of this in the next, or, or 2025, you know, a reasonable period of time right. for the government bureaucracy to work through the entire uh, list of regulations and decide whether they believe it important enough to put it back on the table and in the uh, EU regulatory uh, keeping bill, uh, that it would have to be in that bill by 20, otherwise it dies. And there are some extraordinary bits. Of, I know there's, there's quite a lot of myth-making in Britain uh, around some of the more preposterous regulations. But let me give you one, which I, I have had occasion to look into and I believe is, is true. I haven't consulted lawyers on it. And it's to do with the protection of endangered species. Uh, now, there's a particular type of newt that is uh, by the European Union uh, considered to be an endangered species because of uh, the total land mass of the European Union. It is a, a, a newt that's a salamander. Yeah, like a little yeah, salamander yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, small salamander uh, across the across the continent across the European Union as a whole. It is indeed a very rare species, but that's basically because it only exists in the south of England, where it is a pest. <laughs> 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 But therefore, it's all the, and it, it is absolutely absurd. I'm even told at Southend Airport, which is a very, very small airport in, uh, in Britain, there is someone whose job is the newt protection officer. And no. before, um, you know, before any sort of potholes in the tarmac are filled in, this guy's got to come out and make sure that no newt will die in vain. This is not an endangered species. They're, they're, they're you know, any more than pigeons are an endangered species. Um, uh, and, and the the excuse has not been animal welfare. I mean, it's been endangered species. It's, it's just not a rare species. They're a, they're essentially a pest in 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 some. I mean, that's clearly the sort of example of. Now, it's not going to revolutionise If you can't get rid of that, if you can't get rid of that, yeah. What, what, <laughs> then then um, what's the point? Yeah. yeah. What's the point? Right. Well, well, I say the point is even if. I couldn't get rid of that. The point is, I I think we will avoid much of the flow of this in future. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. so I think we we should work through these absurdities. Mm. 
without any view that, I mean, it, it would not revolutionize the aviation sector for South End Airport to no longer have to check for newts. It is a tiny saving. So yeah. each of these would be tiny micro savings. Yeah. Um, yeah. None of them would be revolutionary. But I, but I think it's, if you like, almost psychologically important to do this. It would be part and parcel of trying to reframe our approach to regulation rather than the present affliction right across the Western world that everybody's incentivized in the government bureaucracy to come up with more rules. Uh, you're sort of promoted if your rules make it onto the books. Uh, you know, one of the highest privileges of a British civil servant is to have passed legislation, not to have repealed it or stopped it. Somehow or other, we need to use this opportunity just to get the dynamics and the incentives pointing in a different direction. That does not mean, Martin, that I can point to you 15 regulations that we are certain to incinerate and to say with my hand on my heart, and this will obviously mean that GDP growth will suddenly be 6% per annum. It won't be like that. But I think there is a chance to reconfigure political and bureaucratic thinking in Britain about what regulations for, what should you do with the stock of it, how should you cross-examine the stock, should it be sunset clause, should we have one in, two outs, one in, three outs, um, uh, and what principles should govern what regulations we bring in in future. All of that is a shot on the board. It might be a shot we miss, but it's a shot that we wouldn't have had if we were not leaving the European Union. Mark? Thank you very much for taking part in my podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Martin, and, as well. Uh, let's let's do this again when we know a little bit more about uh, the extent to which you've been successful in rethinking regulation in Britain. I'll be following in this, and I really hope that Britain will be successful outside the European Union, although I do miss you already. <laughs> well, that's very kind, but I'm sure we can keep speaking even, even as tomorrow dawns and, um, and I'm no longer an EU citizen at all. Uh, it's been a real pleasure being with you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. This was the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we would appreciate an honest review in your podcast app to help others find the show. Thank you for listening.